0: Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is
1: Dan Abuhav.
0: With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on January 13th. Sunday, January 13th, yes. 2019. Yes, good. And
1: boy, are we pooped. We're pooped because we just came back from a long weekend, a jazz weekend. That's right, you heard it here first. Not that it was jazzy. It was, it was a jazz it weekend. It was jazzy in its own way. It was a jazz weekend. I better explain. We were at Mohonk Mountain House. Tamson uh frequents that even more than I do. More recently, most recently was saved. In
0: New Paltz. But this
1: was different. Mohawk Mountain House is a fabulous destination. Some would call it a natural wonder. There's all kinds of fabulous things, but something even more fabulous this weekend. It was Jazz Weekend, sponsored by W uh,
0: BGO. It was the W B G O Winter Jazz Festival. There you go. Music on the mountain. Right.
1: And WBGO oh, is. Jazz
0: the, on the Mountain? Jazz on the Mountain.
1: Jazz on the Mountain weekend. And uh, WBGO is the uh, big uh, jazz station that broadcasts out of Newark that some of us, namely I do, uh, listen to uh, semi regularly. Um, and uh, it's probably as big a jazz station as you have in this area, in the New York area. Uh, and uh, they're very good, and their lead uh, DJ for Long Times Fall named uh, Michael Bourne. And he uh, was the organizer, as he has been apparently for almost 20 years in a row, of the
0: Jazz on the Mountain Weekend at, at Mohawk. So he curates the selection of right. performers. Right. And as he says, he gets people he likes to hear and people he likes.
1: And you could see that. But let, let's set the stage what happens because, you know, it was kind of eye-opening for us. We've never done anything like this. We have never been to a music festival or a music cruise or anything like that. And, uh, so we just don't know what to expect. We're not the most sophisticated jazz listeners. Uh, we had looked at the program. We really weren't familiar with most of the performers on the program. So what to expect? We didn't know. And here's what we got. And it was, there were
0: like performances like every 10 minutes. It was,
1: <laughs> it was crazy. It was great. Here's what it was. They had a performance, uh, m- morning, uh, midday and evening. Uh, we got there Friday evening, so you started with an evening performance at 9 o'clock, and then three performances spread out on Saturday, and then we went to the morning and the afternoon on Sunday. So we got to see a total of six performances in uh, a little less than uh, two full days, really. And there were
0: more going on after we left.
1: Yeah, and yes, and they're still going. So, uh, how did that work out? Was it too much jazz for you, Tamsin, who's not really a jazz yes, fan? Yes, it was
0: too much jazz for you. And me. the
1: answer to that question is no. Tamsin loved it. Oh. Tamsin loved it. She was very enthusiastic. I, I think what she will tell you is, I'll give her a chance now, that she really enjoyed the jazz. Is that fair? I enjoyed the music. Yeah, there you go. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, we, there, we saw so many performances that we couldn't well, possibly you tell you everyone we talk saw. About
0: some of the performers well it
1: was a real range uh and um and they were all i thought they were all great um there's a lot of jazz piano fellow named michael wolf on friday night we saw a woman named helen sung who you thought was fantastic on piano yes on uh monday i'm sorry excuse me on uh, saturday and uh she was uh in the morning of saturday and she was also sunday morning and hers is an interesting story she's a first generation chinese woman uh, And she she
0: grew up in Texas. Went she you, went to school in Texas. To, she was training to be a classical pianist. That's what first generation Must, is, right? Yes, right. Yeah, much to her parents' distress. Right. Her parents they, came over from China.
1: They moved to Houston. They thought her their daughter were, would be a doctor.
0: And uh so she's training to be a classical pianist. Right. She, a friend takes her to hear. Harry Connick right. Jr., right. and he plays the piano, and she goes, wow. Wow. I didn't even know you could do that on a piano. And, uh, she ends up, um, being one in one of the first, uh, classes of, uh, what's it called? The Thelonious Monk Institute. Right. In the new part vocabulary. of the Boston right. Conservatory. And, um, she be- she's incredible. Yes. Because she plays, right. uh, Jazz with the intensity and the skill of a classically trained right. pianist. She has unbelievable power right. uh, for the um, little person she is. Uh, it was just. Well, she was really. It was heart stopping. She,
1: she, she, yes, yeah, she was heart stopping. I think that's true. She was sort of the star of the young star. There weren't too many young stars of, of the concert series. And she was great, um, and but everybody was great. You know, Saturday afternoon they had a fellow named Don Braden, who plays tenor saxophone, who was fantastic. And he has a CD out that's relatively popular now, so I'll mention it. Called the Earth, Wind, and Wonder," in which there are performances of Earth, Wind, and Fire songs and also Stevie Wonder songs. Jazz versions. Jazz versions. Uh and they were there were Not fantastic. With people singing. No, no we didn't no, hear any singing. No, it's, it's until just instrumental. Yeah. Saturday night they had a break from jazz. They did the blues. And they had uh, a blues jam session. And yeah, it was that was great too. And they featured uh Kat Russell, Catherine Russell, who's a reasonably well known uh blues and jazz singer. She's got a tremendously powerful voice. Um and uh, Rob Paparazzi was the guy who led the group, and it was a lot of you know it was Blues Brothers type stuff. And matter of fact, well, he leads something called the New Blue Brothers Blues Brothers
0: Band. He sings with them, yeah. but uh, he also sings with uh, the current iteration of Blood Sweat and Tears. Turns oh, th- out, I wouldn't catch yeah. that. Yeah, know. and um, he voice. is he plays the harmonica,
1: unbelievably well,
0: unbelievable. And yeah. he
1: was really. He did a version of, uh, She's Gotta Ticket to Ride. We started with a John Lennon take on it and he went, you know, off from there. And it was roof raising.
0: It was. It was. On it was. harmonica. On harmonica. The Beatles. On and, harmonica. And the
1: great thing in and the climax, uh, maybe the high point of the weekend was Saturday night, as they tend to do when they do blues and they get everybody together. When they get to the last song or so, they sing, you know, Every Day I've Got the Blues. And everybody comes on stage. And there was a lot of cross-pollination. Uh, so you had everybody. You had Don Grayson well, come clear, on stage. There was
0: no pollination you on, had on stage. cross-fertilization,
1: whatever <laughs> what, it was.
0: There, you're making it sound. They
1: so. all got together and sang together. Helen yeah. Sung was on the stage. And they were going crazy. They that's were what jamming a jam cra- session
0: is, a, Daniel.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's why I tabs it with me. Because I... Because she knows what a jam session is. She, <laughs> she, 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 she was whispering to me the whole time. they're jamming. They're jamming. So you know. Now I know. And then uh, Sunday, we one final mention. Again, we've almost given too much detail. To Scott Robinson, weirdest guy in the world. Scott yes. Robinson Court And he comes on with an odd hat, with an odd vest. He tells us that he made his own hat. He tells us his wife made his own made the vest. And he's he playing plays tenor his sex. first
0: number is like super esoteric, super
1: esoteric, and ready he,
0: to hate this guy.
1: And then he turns it around and he's very heartfelt. Heartfelt was the the word that uh, Michael Bourne used for him. And it was, I think, fairly accurate. He he was very funny. He talked about his family in a very serious way um, and he's soulful. And it, it was a wonderful jazz performance. Uh, look, bottom line, we had a great time. Yes. Uh,
0: but, you know, what was fun. Part of what was fun about it was yeah. it was such a surprise. Yeah. We didn't know what we were to Everything was that no, we, we had no expectations. It was all super. Right. And uh, meanwhile, we got a lot of physical exercise. Right. We, we did some hiking uh, in between uh, musical sets. Yeah. And did some swimming, swimming yeah. and so forth. So it was Listen, quite the weekend. Bottom line is,
1: we're going next year. Uh, and anybody listening you might consider going next first. year. We're going next year. Uh, it was fantastic. So... You know, I. But there so, will be
0: no cross
1: pollination. We came back to real life, which meant football and had mixed results in the football pool. But, you know, much as uh, it's important to win or lose your football pool or football bet, sometimes the players have a bigger stake in it, strangely enough. <laughs> and the big story last week was that the Bears got knocked out of the playoffs when they're playing the Eagles because their kicker, a fellow named Cody Parker, Missed a 43-yard field goal. Well, well, he didn't miss it. Well, they're they're still debating that, but perhaps a defender got a finger on it and it was partially blocked. But the double event, doink, the double doink, it hit the goalpost twice—the upper side and the, and the uh, horizontal side. But the the deal is that people in Chicago, there were some people who acted badly. Some fans didn't take it well. They felt that the kicker failed them. They were criticizing him on Twitter or whatever electronic uh, communications people use in Chicago. <laughs> And uh, there were those who came to his defense, including the Goose Island Beer Company. I have a Goose Island beer every once in a while, usually the IPA. That's what I think they marked it out here. And they decided to defend him by setting up a, uh, a, a goalpost next to their brewery in Chicago. And they marked 43 yards from the goalpost. And they held a, um, uh, an exhibition just this Saturday, just yesterday. I haven't heard about the results in which everybody's allowed to try a 43-yard field goal, the field goal that, that was missed. And anybody who makes it gets a year's supply of Goose Island beer, uh, which is an interesting uh, proposition. And I guess Goose Island's betting that people can't make that 43-yard field goal. And we'll see. It seems to me there are a lot of people kicked in college who could be getting a lot of free beer here if they stop by Chicago. But, you know, it's a nice way to make the point that it's not so easily done. And this poor guy doesn't deserve that much criticism. That fair enough, Tamson.
0: I would say so.
1: Yes, good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, yes, you didn't do very well in the poll. You've been, uh, you know, a little bit on the cranky side. <laughs> all right, I'll get uh, over it. Even I'll though, uh, all right, never mind. Moving right along here, Chrysler Building. It's for sale. Right. You know, you know the Chrysler Building. It's yeah. that uh, Art Deco delight. Uh, In Midtown, Manhattan. It's nice to look at it from my office. Um, And, uh, gee, what a sight. But it turns out nobody wants to buy it. Mm. I mean, um, you can snap it up uh, as a bargain, probably. And uh, there are a couple of different problems with it. Numero uno. It's a landmark. It's got landmark status. Right. And uh, again, you know, we could go on our rant about uh, how that, uh, you know, the preservation uh, can ruin a building uh, in addition to uh, saving it. So they can't make any changes to keep it up to date with, um, you know, modern technology, et cetera. So that is a real problem. And, uh, there, there was also, there was an article by Gina Belafonte in the New York Times speculating that the design itself was too old-fashioned too many warrens of rooms interior columns and low ceilings when today we're really looking for those wide open spaces and apparently one of the reasons you need wide open spaces is because uh, people may not behave themselves and so we need transparency, not just <laughs> like the theoretical <laughs> transparency. Apparently, we need transparency that's right. it's, it's, it's in our architecture yeah, I guess that's um, right. because we can't trust ourselves or whatever. Uh, but she mentions in her article that the uh, the legacy, the future legacy of uh, these buildings may be as collector items more so than functioning <laughs> who's, who's architecture. Good, who's collect them? You know, like. Uh, Uh, You know, uh, perhaps the Bezos couple, Um, you know, they've got billions of dollars. What's it to them to spend uh, a couple billion on a really snappy building uh, that's not quite up to date? Well, that's... uh... Anyway, it's available if anybody wants it. You know what's funny about this article by Gina Belafonte? It starts out how she... uh, uh, a potential boyfriend asks her, what's her favorite building in New York? Yeah. And she's, you know, embarrassed to blurt out to him that it's the Chrysler Building, because that's such an unoriginal answer. Oh. Well, yeah. well, she's <laughs> got, what kind of people she's are we she's... that we can't be comfortable uh, with uh, loving right. something the, that's You're beautiful.
1: letting Gina Belafonte have it. I'm not, I don't disagree with you. But now that you mention collector's items, I'm going to jump the, the order here. And mention that here's a new kind of collector's item. Vintage cars, those have been collector's items for a long time. But now people are buying or converting vintage cars so that they have electric um, underpinnings, electric motors.
0: Well, why not? They're toys anyway. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> so right. So they might as well plug in.
1: Well, apparently, you know, you know who did this? Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle did this. They electrified a 1968 E-Type Jaguar.
0: And oh, they're, really?
1: They're photographed here smiling. and I don't new think electrical... it was a Jaguar,
0: Dan. I think it was a Jaguar.
1: Uh, Jaguar. Sorry. Jaguar. It's electric. I don't know how you pronounce it. It must be different. So in any event, another type of collectible for those interested, it only adds $80,000 to the car. In other words, you can take your new Jaguar in or your Aston Martin or whatever. and uh, In value? No, no. If you say, I want it to, to run an electric system. The cost system, of converting It's it $80,000. Really, and, and so they they reason. I think quite. Correctly. You know, I think
0: my brothers could pull this off for. You, you know, know so this would be a great business. Sixty-five thousand dollars.
1: No, your brothers could really do this, and they they could do it and probably make a zillion dollars. Bryce Steed, are you listening? Yeah, uh, I think it would be fantastic for them. But in any event, it only makes sense clearly for a very expensive car. You're not going to bring in, you know, a Subaru that costs you forty thousand and save. Let's put 80,000 edition in it, and this way it will be like a Prius. I mean, we're not going to do it. How
0: hard can it be? A wire here, a wire there, I mean, a junction or two? I don't all I right, know. All right, we're going to
1: get your, your brothers on that. Let me just mention one final thing about the NFL players before I turn the floor back to you. Which final? I was interesting.
0: Like you're saying final, like it is final? It is final.
1: There was an article in the, in the journal which said, uh, I don't know what they why they thought this was headline news. But they said that former players for the University of Alabama do well in business in Alabama when they graduate because people recognize the name. In particular, the quarterbacks become insurance salesmen, and uh, their yeah. name carries a little uh, recognition value when they do well in insurance. So so maybe football helps you in business later on. And I'm saying to myself, that's how football helps you? Well, it turns out with very little digging. I found an article just a year earlier, not in the journal, uh, in which they listed former store football players 50 of them who work on wall street uh either with venture capitalists or uh as as, as broker dealers or as financial management folks but a lot of them are, I'm not going to read the 50 names, but I will tell you. You have to take my word for it, Townsend. There are many, many highly recognizable names in this list, right? And many of them have very big jobs.
0: The one well, that well, that's you, what you just said. That the, the name recognition is key. It is. Well, I, so it would be the guys with recognizable well, names. The one that you know
1: is Scott <laughs> Bruner, who is here, is now, uh, who was the quarterback of the Giants and lived in Cranberry, and is and now was little league and coach little no league. softball, right? Softball, yeah, right. softball. He is a of little league, but. Um, Wayne Corbett, you know, I don't know if you know him. He's a jet receiver. Uh, he works at, at Um Let's see, Brad DeLuisa works at Morgan Stanley. He was the Giants kicker. Uh, oh, I don't know. Brent Jones, uh, Tommy Vardell played with the 49ers. They have a private equity firm. Phil McConkey returned uh, kicks for the Giants. Um, now he is, he runs a broker-dealer. But, uh, I'm telling you, we got 50 names here, and, uh, I know, I know a name or two that aren't, isn't even on the list. I mean, I was doing some research with respect to valuation on teams, and there was one of the, uh, valuation firms, which is an economics firm, was called Randy Fataha. And I'm saying, Randy Fataha, uh, he's got this valuation business. Uh, he was a big time receiver for the New England Patriots. Or, and the and Stanford before that, and sure enough, I see some conference he's at, and they're joking, saying, "Randy, didn't you play football a million years ago?" And he goes, uh, "Yeah, nobody remembers that." And like, I remember Randy Vatana. So here's my question: What's that?
0: Well, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of these guys you are mentioning are in uh, positions of less impact. Meaning? Meaning, I mean, that that's great. Uh, some football players go on to huh? these. Uh, uh, great jobs, but then you have all these other players that uh, end up with uh, brain damage.
1: Well, you see, but that's this is my point. I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know how many people end up with brain damage or not. I just don't know. Uh, and frankly, neither does the New York Times. So I think none of us know. But uh at least this is one positive side of it. I'm I i do not But this is not
0: something put out by people who say, no, see, no, you know, no. football's not that bad. No, no. Okay? People get great jobs after football. They're not all well, in a wheelchair. The, and yet that might but that point of view might be
1: right. I don't really know. Okay? Mm-hmm. And nobody knows. But mm-hmm. all I'm saying is the guys who play football aren't necessarily dumb jocks with no futures. Uh with deteriorating health and so well, on. Well, I would never think of that. Well, some people do, I think. And my point is that there are a lot of very positive traits that are associated with success anywhere, including in football, maybe even especially in football. And those same traits serve these folks well after they get the education. A lot of them are very smart guys, and they go on to very big things. And they're out of football by the time the 33, 34, plenty of time to have a career. So, it's a, it, you know, you hear the negative story, and I'm not saying there's nothing to that. But I'm saying there's a positive story, too. That's all. Good uh, to know. Good to know. Oh,
0: but I, you know, uh, I'm suspicious. Oh, well, there's nothing. No one's trying to prove a point you know. here. Just the way well, it is. You, well, you don't know. You don't know. No. I mean, people have their reasons for releasing stories and crafting stories. Oh. Um, but uh, you know, if these guys are doing well, more power to them. I wish more of those guys were doing well. Anyway, uh, you'll be glad to know several of your favorite museums yeah. have new exhibitions coming up about Rembrandt.
1: Yeah, we have not heard enough okay, about that. Okay, so you know
0: what that means. We got to do the um, what? We got to do the Netherlands bike tour again. Well, yeah, we're not so doing that. We can that. go we're back not, to these That was a once in a lifetime. Yeah. Oh, come on. It was flat. It was fabulous. I, I didn't say it was bad, but uh, we
1: have well, other places you know, to
0: go. I know, but they probably have hills other places. Let's yeah, just go back to what we we're know. Looking forward to Let's the get hills. good at that. But anyway, in uh, Amsterdam, the Rijksmuseum, love the Rijksmuseum. Uh, they are putting on an exhibition called All the Rembrandts and this will be from February 15th to June 10th they're getting out everything they have by Rembrandt okay that's paintings that's drawings and they say um, what's interesting is it's some of his drawings really show his amazing talents uh, more clearly but wasn't there, wasn't there a Rembrandt drawing
1: exhibit a year or two ago in New York that I heard a lot about
0: possibly yeah Okay. Yeah. Okay. At the Morgan? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Okay. But anyway, uh this is everything and you know that uh the Reichs Museum has some very heavy hitters, including Night Watch, etc. Now they're doing this, they're arranging everything. For those who don't know, heavy hitters means paintings, but yes. Um <laughs> important, <laughs> famous yes. paintings. The heavy hitter. Uh and uh Night Watch. Yeah, right. Which you remember? I remember. Very well. it's, a it's a biggie. It's yeah. the it's the probably North... the painting that everybody runs to. You can't all tourists run could to. You not fit in the back of your car. Uh, yeah. No. And uh they've arranged everything thematically but they haven't moved Night Watch. You can't because move it's it. It's too big. <laughs> no
1: kidding. And so they How just gonna get they worked around it.
0: But here's something interesting. They're not gonna ever move it. They're going to conserve it, actually. Yeah. It's not really... Nightwatch is the nickname for it. Yeah. Um, because it was so... The painting was so dark, they thought it took place at night. Doesn't really take place at night. They cleaned off some of the old oh, varnish. Really? And it turns out it's a daytime thing. That's going to be uh, called but, So, But... <laughs> Day watch. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so they're going to do a new conservation, but the way they're going to do it is kind of fun. And this is not, uh, you've seen this in other museums. You've seen it actually, I think at the Brera, they had this going on we were there last. Uh, Um, Possibly so. They build like a a plexiglass container, and conservators work on the painting right in the museum, and you can watch them working until it's done. So they don't expect huge differences. Uh, but, um, there you have that. Um, you know, Rembrandt is Rembrandt. I mean, Rembrandt's name just means great painter, right? Um, you use it like you use Sanka, you know? Um, <laughs> never, he, he's not at all. He's a true. Rembrandt. That's yeah. Right. Um, just means he's a great painter. That's correct. Okay? There is that. Um, and, uh, it's interesting that, um, because there was such a rage for Rembrandt at a certain point, actually, uh, um, they, the existing number of Rembrandts was as high as 700. I mean, you know that ha- how that happens. People. How does that happen? People forge, oh, okay. people sell paintings that look a lot like Rembrandt, and people okay. want to believe it's Rembrandt, and you can get experts say it mm. is. So in the 1920s, uh, worldwide, there you know, was a count of about 700. That's gone down to about 300. It's back up a little bit, 340. But that's kind of interesting to me that these uh, numbers float around a bit. Meanwhile, there's another exhibition coming to the Moritz House in The Hague. Mm-hmm. Another one of your favorite museums. Mm-hmm. That was a fun museum. It's a small, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm nodding museum. like crazy. I'm like a okay. bobblehead. Yeah. Um, so they have 11 undisputed Rembrandts and a couple others uh, that are questionable that they're making clear, you know, uh, that there are questions on display. And uh, that's going to be from January 31st to September 15th. So I'm saying to you, out there, our listening public, <laughs> if you're heading to the Netherlands yeah. uh, this spring and summer... Yeah, the word Rembrandt uh, will come up, believe uh, Check out Rembrandt. Yeah. And there's also uh, an article in um, the Wall Street Journal talking about Leonardo uh, da Vinci's study of a woman with an ermine, lady with an ermine. Uh, and uh, this is an article by tom freudenheim and uh, talking about a rather elegant portrait uh done around 1489 uh, to 90 that is actually in krakow poland. okay in poland yeah. as part of the zarderyski collection mm. um and uh, mm. it uh actually is uh being lent it to the national museum at the moment because uh, the other museum is uh, being renovated anyway it's an interesting article stating uh, by frodenheim implying that he likes this painting this portrait much better than the well-known portrait mona lisa mm. Um, I saw that coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mona Lisa, there are a lot of people who believe the only reason it's uh, famous is because it was stolen mm-hmm. at a certain point and uh, got a lot of publicity. Uh, this is a very nice painting. Actually, even though I'm not a big Mona Lisa person, it strikes me as a little bit less interesting uh then mona lisa in terms of uh in terms of visually mm-hmm. and uh, artistic technique but it has kind of an interesting story it's uh, allegedly of a courtesan cecilia gallerani mm-hmm. who uh, was buddies with uh, ludovic ludovico sforza okay okay um she had a relationship with him also known as il moro and uh, she actually, um, she's lovely. She seems, uh, she looks fairly sophisticated. The thing is, Sforza gets married to Beatrice d'Este, well known as the most beautiful and brilliant uh, woman, princess in Italy at the time. And if you can believe it, um, Cecilia actually gets pregnant after yeah. Sforza and Beatrice are married I get where you're going there. Beatrice yeah. writes her a mean note mm. um, and uh, puts an end then, to that relationship it so it's it. an intriguing story yeah. Um, yeah. but anyway why she's holding an ermine we do not know uh, there, there <laughs> That's lots not of, the least of it who cares? Lots Is of interesting ask? stories about ermines <laughs> mainly that they don't like to get their coats dirty yeah. they'd rather die they get mud on their fur. Quite a few of them that do even, die. Even Leonardo to seems city. to mention this. So um, there you have it, a Polish Leonardo.
1: Yeah. All right. So uh, it's hard to beat a Polish Leonardo. Here's something that's odd, though. Uh, a cyclist has tested positive for steroids and been denied a world record. You
0: How say, is that odd?
1: Why is that odd? Because the cyclist in question is uh, 90 years old. You know what, this is
0: the thing. He just didn't get the memo. You you know, perhaps he's not into technology. This happens with older people. All the cyclists are doing it. They just didn't tell. Well, that's not, he has an excuse. So He
1: he was racing in the 90 to 94-year-old division. And it's a 2,000. (laughs) Wait a minute, there's a
0: 90
1: to 94? There's a 2,000-meter track. And six laps in the, of the velodrome. To 100 division. I want you to let's focus on the numbers. He did the uh, 2,000 meters in uh, three minutes. And It's hard really to think about that. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's pretty fast. Uh, and the, then they tested him uh, for steroids the next day, and he's found that he had a prohibited uh, steroid. And this is where the intrigue starts. First of all. Uh, the thought begins, why would he be taking steroids because he has no competition? In other words, you are correct. <laughs> no one's racing him in the 1994 90 division, so it seems like you wouldn't extend yourself uh, in that way. And number two is um, he claimed, as many people do, he didn't take a prohibited steroid. It was because of some some tainted meat he ate the night before. Apparently, this is what you say when they catch you with tainted steroids. Meat. Tainted meat. But in his case... Uh, they believe it. They, he had uh, a piece of liver the night before. Talking about giving liver a bad name. And they said, oh, yeah, that can happen with liver. And not only did they restore. So somebody gave the cow uh, they, they, steroids? Uh, well, this is, is, is a fantasy. The point oh, okay. is uh, somebody just said, you know, some of the guys 90, forget it. Put uh, the man a break. Yeah. So we're not taking away the win and we're not taking away the world record. Uh, and he's not returning phone calls. So
0: I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. But it does. I, I, show I think science now, is, we science now we is know. So now we have two more on. years. We can start taking steroids and win all the games. Look,
1: look, there's a question of what you can really tell from these blood traits. Uh, and in a different type of story in that connection, the latest thing in the NBA is marketing uh, by an Irish company called Areco which claims that if they do a regular uh, analysis of of players' blood, NBA players, basketball players' blood, like several times a week, uh, they can provide valuable information as to their health in particular, uh, whether they're fatigued or not, whether they're liable to uh, catch a disease or something like that, whether they need a certain type of training or their immune system is down. And uh, two teams have bought into it. One is the Dallas team, the Dallas Maverick team, which is doing extremely well, and by the way, it's voluntary, not every player has to do it, but one or two of the players who are using it say it's been tremendously helpful to them, for the, the young folks who have trouble playing this long a season for the first time in their lives, it tells them when they have to step back. There's one older player in particular who's having the uh, best season uh, of his career, uh, Jose Berea. And he says, this is a marvelous thing. He said at one point they tested him as being vulnerable and he kind of got hurt the next day. Now he dials it back, pays attention to the blood results. So this would be quite persuasive except for the fact that the other team using this is the is the Knicks. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and uh, the Knicks are in the toilet, as we like to say in the blood testing business. So um, that's not the endorsement they're looking for. But uh, Mark Cuban, by the way, owns the Dallas Mavericks. And Mark Cuban says he pays $150,000 for this service, and it's worth every penny.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: It's so, uh, peanuts to him. It is peanuts to him. And some people think he's a smart guy, and some people not so much. Uh, but anyway, it's something to look for. Uh, and then here's something, which uh, I guess every once in a while, people ask this question, and now the Journal's asking this question. What's up with those guys who don't wear coats in the wintertime? We all know someone, and you and I have someone in mind, we can mention his name or not, uh, who uh, walks around in the wintertime and makes a point of not wearing a coat. As a matter of fact, if you uh, walk around New York City or some highly popular place, you'll see guys in the dead of winter wearing shorts. Uh, maybe a hoodie, but shorts. And so the Wall Street Journal uh, decides to figure out what's going on.
0: Well, you know what's going on. They're just stupid. <laughs> well, how, how is how is that difficult to figure out? Well, it turns
1: out that you could have saved the Wall Street Journal a lot of time and money because that is the answer. The, uh, they did a bunch of interviews, and here's what they came. They made this as scientific as they could. They said, number one, <laughs> comfort was a main factor. Um, this may seem weird, but some people say that they find warm coats uncomfortable. This is highly scientific, all right? Some people uh, unscientific, say. Unscientific, yeah. Well, that's 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 the way a lot of articles in the paper get written. Some people say, "Believe me, the majority." Um, others uh, say um, that mobility is limited in coats, right? Mobility is a problem. And others say that they don't think outerwear. Here's a quote: "I don't think outerwear is the most flattering of shapes on most people. You look bulky in it," says Michael Kernis, twenty-five, a software consultant.
0: Um, so they're and, too vain. And and they're finally, too vain to stay warm.
1: Finally, the final reason given was this is from a fellow named Leon Mayer, a 31 year old real estate investor, which means I guess he's unemployed. That, uh, he said, I've become a creature of habit and I like to wear the same thing every day. And, you know, it's, uh, I can't be bothered with uh, putting on long pants. I wear shorts, uh, comfortable most of the time. So it's a little rough during a couple months of the year, but
0: I don't think he gets (laughs) out much to be honest. Yeah.
1: So uh, I think you kind of put your finger on it. Uh, you jumped the gun on this, but I think you're right. And the journal wouldn't say this, but yeah, they're just stupid. I think that's probably all you can say. Uh, it's a wide world, and a lot of people uh, don't do a lot of heavy thinking when it comes to choosing their outerwear. That's all we can say. Um, and finally, finally, this is the story that uh, we just – no one else could possibly have an interest in this story except for us. Uh, there's a story about the progenitor of Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. It's it's a couple, uh, Mary Kay and John Stearns, which is written about because Mary Kay Stearns passed away at the age of 93, uh, who had the early, early version uh, from some way of speaking of Tamsin and Dan, read the, the paper. The
0: Daniels, nothing like that. It's, it's, it's well, more like I love Lucy or something. It's true.
1: It's true. It is a little it's, bit. But, but let's, let's explain. People can draw their own conclusions. The, the point is that Mary uh Stearns and John Stearns... In, in John the infancy Stearns,
0: of television.
1: That's right. They came up with a, a broadcast television show in 1948 that ran for two years on the Dumont Network, a network that no one listening to this has ever heard of. But, uh, as a matter of fact, it was a time when Dumont not only was a network, but they made the TVs to watch the show on. I can tell you that from what I've heard. Um, and the show, uh, there are rumors, 15 to 30 minutes long. But they basically... Uh, This is the way the Times explains it. Um, it was a, it told gently humorous tales of the fictional John, Johnny, a banker, and Mary Kay, a homemaker. Uh, and Mrs. Stearns, who wrote the episodes, often drew from the couple's lives for inspiration.
0: Uh, and people believed it. They had notes in there it. that people, you know, they would send, uh, that's exactly things right. to them to solve problems here, here, in their here, here's lives. Here's a quote.
1: Mrs. Stern well, cards, that's et cetera. Right. We got a tremendous amount of mail, Mrs. Stern said, because people had never seen a husband and wife in real life doing skits that were based on what really happened in our marriage. So people became tremendously identified with us as people. They were a sensation. In 1949 and 50, uh, before television had caught on. See, they, there are two things that they have in common with us. Uh, one is that they were putting out a product that no one who would be their likely audience could possibly receive because no one had a TV set right. in 1940 1950. Right. So they had it, and even if they got a half share, that was 185 people. That was all they were going to have, and no one was <laughs> recording it. So that was a limiting factor. And the second was, and here's the quote, it was television by the seat of the pants, which I think also is uh, something they have in common with us. This is sort of uh, podcasting by the seat of our pants. So there's that. Uh but none they seemed You know it. what
0: I thought was interesting was okay. they mentioned that uh they actually showed the couple in bed together. Oh what? Now you what? know not that, that, that was that was outlawed right. um by the T V censors. Yeah. Yeah. You you remember you would always see Lucy and right. Ricky and, and, and in and, and, twin beds. Yeah. And I just as a kid thought that was weird. Did you? Uh yeah. Oh because were, I just you, you know you were
1: precocious. There's uh, no question about it.
0: <laughs> what were you rooting and then, for here? And then later I found out uh, you know, that it was uh I think considered just, um, racy to have two I, I people in the of, same bed. I, I thought
1: think, it was normal. I think Fred and Ethel had uh, had a double bed, uh, as opposed really. To and Ricky. You're making that up. I am making it up. You're right.
0: Yeah, but no one ever got into Fred and Ethel's uh, Fred apartment. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, that's true. But anyway, but anyway, they're they live on show, the street. Their, their show got a little bit of popularity yeah. and then the network the, the, Stearns uh, were yeah, about, yeah. the network decided uh, we'll get real writers Yeah, and once they had real writers, the Stearns didn't really like the copy Yeah, and uh, bowed out uh, that's the story well, they that, give anyway.
1: that, that, that's, I put my foot down here many offers for real writers have come our way and we've said no, we don't want real writers we're doing it by the seat of our pants as we have done it tonight uh, so uh, until next
0: time this is Tamson
1: Granger and uh, Dan Appyhop
0: with Tamson and Dan read the paper. See you next week.